Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today we talk to the man who will lead Australia's women's football team into a home World Cup in 2023, bringing more than 20 years of coaching experience, including success at club level as well as enormous accomplishments in his role as assistant coach for the US women's national team. Today's trailblazer is Tony Gustafsson. I got the eye of the He began the role with the Matildas at the start of 2021. Today we get to know him a little better. Tony Gustafsson, welcome to you. Thank you for joining us on Trailblazers. How are things in Sweden? Well, thank you very much for a warm welcome. Uh, it's uh, snowy and cold, uh, but beautiful scenery. We signed on as manager of the Matildas at a very interesting time in world events. You had to finish your club role with Hammerby first. How has the pandemic affected your working life? Uh, you know, we're living in a, a very different world today and, and, and I have the biggest respect to the ones that are in, in a much tougher situation than I am. So in terms of saying that the work has been effective because you are worried about having a national team camp or not, and you put that in the perspective of where we are today in the world, I'd say from, from my perspective, you know, especially in the times in, in Hammarby when I was working there before this job, uh, I was impressed of the, the way the club handled it and, and I was lucky to, to have a job to go to uh, and I was lucky that, that I can, could enjoy my, my passion and my true passion with it, which is people and, and footballers uh, and I could go to work and, and even though it was adjustments and, and things in the work, I, I, like I said, I had the biggest respect for, for people in the situation that it is in the world today. So I was just very happy and lucky to be able to go to work. And now you'll be taking up the reins at the Matildas. How did you first hear about the vacancy? Was that through your coaching network? Well, obviously, it's a small world in terms of the football world. Um, and uh, I do have a very, very good friend of mine and a colleague that I worked some years with, with the name of Jill Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, you, you know, when when uh, teams and countries have vacancies and looking for things. But um, in terms of... Um, first contact i um i was uh, contacted by the football australia and and from there we, we moved on in a very thorough interview process and then here we are today mm, well it's wonderful to be chatting to you now and have you formally in the role did you chat to anyone about it who was connected with australia i know you had a brief crossover with tom samani through the u.s team did you reach out to him at all yeah i didn't not to tom in this case i, I did run into tom Great person, by the way, <laughs> fantastic man, uh, big heart. Um, 
in terms of, of reaching out, what I what I did is I spoke to um, to a lot of people in the in the FA, you know, in the from the interview panel and, and so forth. And I said from the from the very first day, what an amazing group of people. And that was definitely one of the reasons that I, I wanted to be involved and wanted to get this job. Uh, first and foremost, for the players and the Matildas, I've seen them play. I know what they're about, but also the people around the team. I just felt, you know what, this this marries my my values and my passion for the game and, and the fact that that they're so keen on creating a legacy that is bigger than ourselves. You know, I want to be part of that legacy. And if, if they feel I can contribute in a small part in that, I am the happiest and proudest coach that could be. I think it'll be a larger part just between you and me. As you mentioned, you were already very aware of the Matildas. What was your opinion of them when they were your opposition? I've always said when when watching them and, and playing them um, that there's there's an X factor about this team that I that really impresses me, you know. And now that I've been a little bit more educated, I know that there's a name for that as well. The, the never say die <laughs> attitude, uh, which is which is for me says a lot about the team. And and two games that really stands out for me now when we're spoke, speaking is is the Brazil game and the World Cup that says a lot about what this team is about. And then you look at the China game in the qualifiers as well. You know, on that last minute goal, it, it, teams don't do that if they don't have that X factor. And in this case, that never say die attitude. I mean, it, it's, it's something unique with this team that I really felt I wanted to be a part of. We're going to talk about your experience in the US in a moment. But for now, you're having to get to know a whole team full of players that you haven't actually been able to travel to visit. How are you approaching that? I've, I'm one of those people that always try to, uh, at least try to, uh, <laughs> look at how we can make best use of time. Uh, and I, you know, sometimes I like to use words from people that are much smarter than I am uh, and have more experience than I have. And Charles Darwin had a quote where he said, it's not the strongest that survives, nor the most intelligent that survives, it's the one that is most adaptable to change. And I, I kind of took that quote to the heart in this case and said, you know, how can I adapt to change here? When I, like you said, when I can't connect physically in the same room or in the same field as the players. So I did what everyone else have done for a while. I connected through through video and, and voice and, and tried to connect as good as possible. And and I had to learn because I'm, I'm not the greatest on computers, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> But I tried to get better in learning. Um, so what I did is the very first week I, I was appointed as a head coach, I booked 18 individual meetings with all the staff uh, per one hour and, and really, you know, get to know and connect. And then last week I had 21 individual meetings with all the contracted players per about one hour. Um, and those meetings were I'm amazed how you can actually connect with people over the, you know, the way we speak now and you know, look at each other and talking and, and, and finding, you know, a connection even over, over big distances. And, and the way the players opened up for me in terms of, of giving me a chance to connect, so thankful and grateful for that. So can you just fill us in, for those of us on this Australian island, are you able to travel to see any of the team? There are some some restrictions and, and you need to, I, I don't know all the rules to be honest and I'm very careful to answer questions when, I, when I'm not educated on them. I, we are looking into to those circumstances now with the help of, of um, smart people within the Federation to see where can I travel, when can I travel? Because if it was 
possible. I would like to be physically present and, and visiting, play, visiting players on site where, uh, on, where they are with the clubs to meet club coaches, but more so meeting the, the players individually. But I also have the biggest respect to the situations we are in the world right now. And as of today, uh, I prioritize to, to watch games from, from home and, and connect with people as, as we do today. Uh, and then as soon as things hopefully get better, I can start travel. Yeah, thank goodness for television. Well, the Tokyo Olympics are set to be the first test for you. How do you plan for something like that amid so much uncertainty? I'm, um, you know, when you say the word uncertainty, I, th I think that that is actually one of the key factors uh, as of today, meaning being comfortable living with the uncertainty uh, and feel okay with that. And, and, but also at the same time, as I'm saying that, control the controllables. Meaning the things that we can control, we try to control uh, and do the best out of that situation. And, um, you know, as of today, we just need to prepare as the Olympics will we'll go on. And if we can't meet physically, we need to then see what can we do from distance. Just to throw a couple of ideas out there. Not don't want to make any false promises to anyone here, but can we... Can we create a digital playbook that we can share with players? Can we have more individual meetings, team meetings? Can we have, you know, can we, I, instead of lose time, can we make use of time? Uh, that's kind of my approach now to prepare best way possible for the Olympics. And the one thing though I want to bring up is it, it is, it's going to be a challenge, especially for the players. You know, this is not the first time they experienced a, a new coach this short time before a, a major tournament. And I'm, I'm impressed how they've been able to handle it. And, and I'm so appreciative that they've given me the opportunity and, 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 and openness that they've had in all these meetings. And I'm going to do everything within my power to try to navigate the landscape best possible, meaning with this short preparation time, we, we need to be very, you know, laser focused and make sure we do the right things in small amount of time to be as prepared as possible. With the amount of contracted players playing in Europe, they're getting exposure to a different style of football. Teams that tend to keep the ball on the deck rather than perhaps a, a route one style of football. Is that an advantage for you that you have so many players over there playing in that way? I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, from experience, I think there's no, not one journey to success. There's not one pathway for each player to reach their full potential. I, I've been around so long, so I've seen there's always different ways, different pathways um, for each individual player. What I can say from experience, and there's some reports on this, that the, if the majority of the players representing a national team is player play in the bigger clubs in the biggest league, meaning the higher up you play ranking-wise at the club landscape, that would larchen the chance to succeed in a national level from statistics. So it's not my personal opinion. It's just, you know, stats. <laughs> um, and if, if you... If you then look at it from that perspective, there's a lot of those players now being exposed in, in unique environments with really, really, really good circumstances to, to develop and be pushed a little bit outside the comfort zone and challenged and, and making sure they get, get better and develop. In terms of the playing style, I think every time you experience something new, I think it's good. Um, you know, whether that is rope one or playing the ball on the deck and tactics and all that. And if you look at the report that the Football Australia put out, in that report, there's also very clear that, you know, we haven't played enough against European oppositions. And there's some stats saying that we, we need to do that more. And I think the players have expressed that it's it's good for them to play with and against a lot of these uh, European players uh, and teams as well. The one thing I want to add to that, though, it's, it's not one size fits all here, meaning everyone should go to Europe and you're successful. 
but it also depends on where in Europe do you go mm -hmm. with club and what environment can they provide, you know, in, in, in terms of support and quality and, and all these things. So, so in that sense, I just want to want to be, be clear on my message that there's not one, one decision that is best for everyone. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. is our trailblazer today. Tony, you have 21 years coaching experience already and you started your career as a player. What did your childhood look like? I am so appreciative to my parents for the childhood that they've, they've given me. Uh, I am born and raised in a sports family. My father's been involved in the game in every aspect you can think of from goalkeeper goalkeeper coach assistant coach head coach scout sitting on the board you know everything that that you can think of and, and then my mom uh, worked as a PE teacher for 42 years in the same school passionate about sports and then you add to that my my older sister who was four years older than me that was brilliant in in multiple sports football golf table tennis so I'm born and raised with, with sports and, and there's been balls laying around in our house and in our, we had like a playroom where we can do whatever we want without being afraid of, of breaking it up. Like we had a backyard where you, we had everything you can, you can dream of as a kid in terms of play, play you know, being able to play. I, I guess the word play, you know, not just play football, but play was big mm. in my, my childhood. But was there ever a question of not being a footballer? Did you play any other sports? I did. I did. I, I did experiment a lot with different, you know, as a very, very young kid, I did some gymnastics. Uh, then I did table tennis. I did golf, uh, football. We lived very close by uh, downhill skiing. I didn't go to the club, but I, I was there every night when I was young skiing. And, and that turned into a little bit snowboarding after a while. And so I, I you know, I've been, been very active. But once I did choose to go all in for one sport, football was the natural choice for me, for sure. So what sort of player would you describe yourself as? <laughs> uh, very passionate. Um, I, I wasn't the fastest, but I was a fast thinker and I could run a lot. Uh, and I had a pretty decent function, functional technique and, and I loved to score and had a couple of good seasons when it comes to scoring. So I guess that that's a little bit me, I guess. Uh, you had a stint playing for the Orlando Lions. You went to the U.S., yes? Well, it was actually my older sister uh, went to the U.S. to um, to educate herself to become a golf pro, a uh, golf teacher. And and um, she talk, spoke only good about that Orlando experience. So I... Mm -hmm. I went there to that golf academy myself for, for one semester. Uh, I'm big on teaching. Uh, and at the same time, I played for, for a club. Uh, I looked into what club was there. Orlando Lions was there at the time. I asked for a tryout, uh, tried out, play with them. And then as playing for that club, the, the UCF head coach at the time, University of Central Florida, saw me play and, and offered me a full-time scholarship at University of Central Florida. So... I transferred there and, and played for them one semester as well. It was a, talking about getting exposed to a different environment, different culture, different playing style. I know how much that means for, for, for a person and a player to grow. And I, I grew a lot from that year. As well as sport coming through your family, it sounds like teaching runs through your family as well. How has your teaching background helped you in your coaching career? I have learned so much from being a teacher. Um, I'm a teacher by degree, math and PE. Um, High school? 
Uh, yes, yeah. high school. I started as a substitute teacher very early on at a young age, 19. Uh, loved working with kids um, and loved that environment of, you know, how can I help this individual to get better and, and see their full potential? Uh, there's a quote for me in, in teaching that I, I use a lot, meaning I, I love you for who you are, but I'm going to see you for who you can become. Uh, I want people to understand that I see the potential in them, uh, but I respect and love them for who they are at the same time. So that, that established early on that passion. And then, you know, teaching has, has been, been huge for me. So, so I've, I've always been keen on learning myself because I think if, if you want to be passionate about learning, teaching others, you need to learn yourself. And, and I have had the opportunity to start at university level for six and a half years, uh, the PE, and then the, uh, a coaching, um, two year of, of football coaching education, mm -hmm. and then the year of studying in the US. And that has have helped me so much in terms of teaching. And I think as a coach, you can look at yourself as a teacher. At least I do that. You know, I can look at yourself as a teacher, teacher of the game or teacher of, of motivation or teach, you know, I look at myself as a teacher a lot when I look at myself as a coach. Tony, do you feel it in your early days? And it's been such a successful transition to where you are now, but do you feel like you made any mistakes that you learned from? Well, it was easy for me. I played every minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I um was fortunate enough to have players around me accepting that accepting that role uh, i i went back to a club that i had played with before and then i played higher up the system as a professional and at the age of 26 i was offered to come back to this local club that's been been a, a big part of my life and big part of my career uh, called utterhoglas Iko, a very small club small town in the north of sweden and um, at the age of 26, I made a choice to not uh, continue my professional football career, but dot my journey to become the best football coach I could be. And I was too young to put the boots on the shelf and, and I, I had to play a little bit more and I had the privilege to do that in that club. So I was a playing coach for over five years, first in Nytterhogdal and then in a club called Dege for CF. I was a playing assistant for a year. Then when I was offered a head coaching job at a higher level, one of those, you know, should I play or shouldn't play? <laughs> then, then you can't be a playing coach. Then you just have to coach and step aside. Tony, do you feel it in your early days? And it's been such a successful transition to where you are now, but do you feel like you made any mistakes that you learned from? Oh, plenty. I think that mindset of looking at failure as the first step for success. Uh, and and I, I'm... I'm, I'm sure I'm going to make some mistakes here as well for the Matildas. I hope they won't be big and I hope they won't influence the players and the teams too much. But as a, as a coach being in, in that position, you always look back and say, why did I do that? I could have done it that way. And, and But learning from that is is the key. Um, and there's a, I read a quote, actually, I, I, I tried to read a lot of leaderships and stuff and, and inspirational books. And I read a quote pretty recently, or I saw a quote pretty recently where it said, um, we never lose, we win or we learn. Um, so in that sense, I think I've learned a lot from my mistakes throughout the years. So you started with men's teams. How did you make the transition to working in the women's game? Uh, it was a coincidence. Uh, I've coached on the men's side for over 12 years. And then Pia Sundhage uh, wrote me an email. Uh, I didn't have any contact with her earlier. I know who she was and she knew who I was. And then an email came in my inbox in, I think it was March or April of 2012, 
and Pia said, hey, Tony, I heard you're available. I need an assistant. Do you want to win an Olympic gold medal? <laughs> and I said, who, who doesn't want to win an Olympic gold medal? And just the way she wrote that email felt me, you know, I felt I, I need to see her. And I, I, you know, we met in Stockholm and, and um, I felt I want to be part of this journey. So, so that's how I ended up being in, in women's football and experienced the, the Women's Olympic in London in 2012. Yeah, I think it took you about three seconds to say yes to that job. With men and women, there is a difference in the way they communicate and understand instruction and coaching. What do you find is the biggest difference? Let me let me rewind that a little bit there, because I'm I'm. This is a question that is I get a lot, and and what I said. So, for example, when you're a teacher in a classroom and you have twenty five or thirty kids in front of you, you have both girls and boys, right? Um you need to learn as a teacher to reach out to that individual, no matter if it's a boy or a girl. For me, it's very similar as a, as a football coach. It's not whether I coach women or men, it's I coaching people. And mm -hmm. for example, the two weeks ago, like I said, I had 18 individual meetings with my staff because I coach coaches as well, right? I'm, mm -hmm. And both men and women. And for me, it's about reaching that individual. It's not about reaching a woman or a man. It's, it's, it's reaching that person. And first and foremost, treating them from being a, being a person. So having experience for both teaching, being a parent for both a boy and a girl, and also coaching both men and women, I think it's important to, to reach the person first and foremost and, and not generalize too much to say, this is how I need to be with women and this is how I need to be with men. This is how I need to be with that specific individual or this specific group. Because I've also experienced a lot of different men's teams, for example. I haven't been the exact same way with each group because each group is unique. Same thing on the women's mm -hmm. side. You know, I, I had Tudors, uh, I had the US Women National Team, now I had the Matildas. It's, it's finding that group and where that is, where they are. And right now I'm in a process where I want to learn everything possible about the Matildas. So these meetings have been of tremendous value for me. And if you have some insights, please give me. I, I want to learn about the culture. I want to learn about the landscape. I want to learn about the people. Uh, and and I, I am new to this. And I, I think, you know, getting help from, from people that understand the Australian country and culture and landscape and the Matilda's history and all this. Um, for example, next week, I'm going to have a meeting with, with the, the alumni, the, the former Matildas. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have they're probably going to have a lot of questions on, to me, but I'm going to have as many to them because I want to learn, you know, and I also think it's important to respect the past. So, so yeah. I'm sure you'll be getting plenty of information in the coming weeks and months. Now, of course, after your first stint with Pia, you went back to Sweden and you coached a club side. You took them all the way to the Champions League final in 2014. Uh, you managed to bring some of those American players over to play in that club side. That must be very satisfying as a coach when you reflect back on that time. Yes, but you did mention the Champions League final, and that's a, uh, it's. <laughs> I still have a, some sleepless night about that final. You know, losing a Champions League final, yeah. being up twice. You know, two nil and three two, and lose four three. Even though it was an epic final, and a lot of people have, have said afterwards that this was one of the best finals ever in terms of, of entertainment value. It was tough being on the on the losing side of that one. Uh, am I proud about the achievement? Yes, I am. Because uh, it was a unique situation, a unique circumstances with the club in crisis. You know, players not getting their salaries and, and a lot of turbulence around us with, with you know, the, the status of the club at the time. And 
I think I learned so much how to handle a team through crisis and what's important from a leadership perspective, but there's no way I could have done that without the players uh, and the importance of those informal and formal leaders at the time for, for Tito. So that, there's no way I could have done it without them. It's a challenge that is not unique to women's football, but we do see it a lot that sometimes the funding is just not there. Are you baffled that a club can go from so much success to insolvency? Uh, I, I think we we all we all are obviously right, and uh, obviously being on the on the inside of it, working there day to day, and and, and experience that it's uh, it's a chapter in my coaching career that I've learned a lot from a lot from, um, and I think what's important though is is I've, I've seen this on the men's side, I've seen it on the women's side is, and I, again I'm going to quote some I, I think it was one of the coaches that coached Barcelona at the time said you know. Sometimes the biggest opponent is not the opponent on the other side of the field. It is disturbance. Because being at the top level in this game, there's always going to be some type of disturbance, whether that's financial disturbance, whether it's, you know, conflicts, whether it's firm opinions from people around or whatever it might be. And I think as a coach and as a player to be able to deal with that, I, I think is one of many success factors for a successful team. Well, speaking of success, the U.S. women's national team have been on top of the world for a long time. What is it like to go to an Olympics or a tournament with a team that's expected to win? Not just turn up and compete, but to win it. I'm wired similar to, to at the time, the U.S. players, meaning uh, pressure is a privilege. So when, when you say the word expectations, that, that means there's pressure, right? And, and the reason why there were big expectations is because they, they were ranked or are ranked the number one in the world. So if you look at people's expectations around the world, you then expect the number one ranked team to win, right? And, and you need to be able to, to handle that in a positive way. And, and I look at it this way. I look at it as a privilege to be part of the team that is ranked number one that does have expectations on, uh, on you. Um, and I, I think I've, I've always been that way. You asked me how I was as a player. I think I was at my best as a player when we played a cup final or a derby or, and I've looked at stats from my coaching. Actually, it wasn't me. It was a friend of mine that showed me the stats. Say, Tony, have you seen the stats? And, and there's something saying that I have better stats in derbies and finals. And, and, and you know, <laughs> when, it's, when it's that moment, you know, where it really matters. And, and I guess there's something that, that sparks in me when, when I play games like that or, or in, you know, coaching games like that. A big game player. Well, you have a few of them on your roster when the Matildas looking ahead. With the US team, there is a legacy left by the 99ers when they came through and women's football seems to have so much gravitas now in the US and that resonates around the world. Do you think that's because of that legacy, because of the expectations on themselves that they would win? For sure, that's a part of it. And I, I said earlier in, in this interview that I, I respect the past tremendously. Uh, so for me, new, now moving forward as well, is respecting the past and embracing the future. And what those former players have done to the game, I, I can't even imagine how much they, they, they fought for, for everything and what, they, what they've done for the game. And I wouldn't be where I am today as a coach for the Matillas if it wasn't for all those players that walked uh, paved the way before me. You know? So I'm, I'm grateful and thankful for that. Have that created a, a legacy and, and kind of that, that culture, uh, specifically in the US, for sure. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands.
Tanya Kufstausen is with us ahead of what is hopefully a busy and exciting year with the Matildas. And Tony, it's difficult to plan anything at the moment, but what's on your wish list for the Matildas in the immediate future? Well, first and foremost, my, my wish list for both players and staff and, and everyone around is obviously safety. You know, we're living in an uncertain world right now and, and right now safety comes first. Uh, with saying that, obviously as a coach and as a new coach, I would wish to meet the team ASAP, you know. <laughs> I, I obviously want to get the team together as soon as possible to get the chance to meet staff and, and players and and not just them, all the fans and the stakeholders and media and everyone included in the football landscape. I, I, I would love to meet everyone in person, but again, within the framework of, of safety. But on my wish list, it's obviously to, to meet everyone in person. Yeah, hopefully the fans in Australia will be meeting you soon too. Have you been to Australia before? I have not. And that's something I am really, really, really looking forward to. And, and obviously with the, with the situation of, of COVID at, at the time, it's going to maybe take some time before that's possible. And, and, but I, I can't wait to, to get to see Australia. My, my sister lived there for a year and a half and, and she has only good things to say about the country and the people. And your family? I understand you have two children. Are they keen to come and stay for a while? Yes. Oh yes, they are. They are really excited. I mean, we're, we're all already started to to educate ourselves on the country a little bit, to to watch some shows and documentaries, and and learn about the country, and and obviously speaking to people. And we had some some friends that's lived there as well, and we're trying to 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 prepare best way possible. But there's there's nothing else than actually being there, present. So I, I can't wait to to come there and experience. Now, I know family is very important to you. How do you plan, COVID willing, to balance your time? Will you split it between both places? My plan as of, again, depending on the situation in the world, uh, plan is that I would principally based in Australia uh, from next summer um, and spend a lot of time in Australia throughout these four years. But I will also spend a lot of time in Europe because I think it's the best for the team. Uh, a head coach that can visit players on site, playing in Europe, uh, watching games, connecting to players. I want to watch the Euros live uh, in 22 mm. to scout upcoming opposition for the World Cup and look at the trends in the game where it is. I want to watch the Champions League where I think we're going to have a lot of players representing the Matildas in the Champions League. Um, and also I have complete trust in what we now built in around the staff for the Matildas. So we will always, even if I'm not uh, on site uh, locally, which I will be a lot, but the times I'm not, uh, we have Mel Andrieta and, and all the other coaches representing uh, the Matildas on site, whether that's scouting a W League game where we now have a lot of scouts uh, at Mel have done a phenomenal job planning and networking and building a, a team of people that's watching every game on site now. Uh, whether it's uh, communicating with youth national team coaches and, and the landscape and all that. So I will spend a lot of time there throughout these four years, but I also will spend time in Europe because I think I'm going to try to balance that the best way possible. In terms of balancing work family, that's been a balancing act for 21 years. And if it wasn't for my family uh, and their support and their understanding, there's no way I could do this. Tony, how old are your children? 17 and 19. Do either of them play football? My son plays. Uh, he's very passionate about the game. My daughter is a dancer. She's passionate about her dance. And were you at any point your son's coach? I was for a bit, yes. But I, <laughs> I have, I, to be honest, that's a good, that's a good input though, because I'm one of those that I think sometimes 
we parent, including me, can get a little bit overambitious and kind of want to pass on our own passion towards the kids. And I think it's very important that they find their own inner drive and passion. So I've tried to balance that by stepping back and show I'm here if you want to, if you need to. And, and at the young age, when it's a lot of volunteer work, I obviously stepped in as a, as a volunteer to coach. I think that was a bit, a bit different for people to experience because I was a head coach for Hammarby at the time. And then I was a volunteer coach with, with my kids team in the local club here when we live. So I, but I, I tried to, to balance that as well. Well, I admire your patience. I coached as a volunteer coach when my daughter was very young, around five or six. It was one of the most frustrating things I think I've ever done. So good on you for your resilience. Now, we spoke about expectations, not pressure on yourself. We have an Olympics coming up, an Asian Cup, and of course, a home World Cup. Do you feel any pressure? I do, uh, but in a good way. Um, but what I would like to, to say there when you mention expectations and those tournaments, I also think it's important to, I think I answered this actually in one of the first interview when I was announced in London and said, uh, can we expect the Matillas to win? And I said, it's every fan's right to expect whatever they want, you know, it's <laughs> how it should be. If you look at rankings and you look at where the team sits in the world states today, uh, I've always saying whether I've coached the club teams uh, or national teams, whether I coach men and women, I say what people can expect is what the ranking says or the odds says, so to speak. Oh, and, mm -hmm. and we're ranked seven in the world today. And that's what you can expect for this team. Do I believe we can do more than that? For sure. And for me personally, it's a big difference between I expect or I believe. Uh, and for me, the I'm here because I genuinely deep inside my core believe that we can create result that is is maybe even better than what people can expect us to do. Again, like I said, when I, when I saw the team play and when I've seen the team play, there's something that really resonates with me uh, as a person. I, you know, one word that comes up to me is intensity. You know, when, when the Matildas play, there's always intensity on both sides of the ball. And when you see me in the technical area during a game, I think you're going to see some intensity too. <laughs> um, so, so that passion we, we definitely share. Uh, I've been told that I think the, the coffee culture, there's a culture in Sweden called fika. You take <laughs> coffee with a colleague and, and you talk over a, a, a fika. And I think that coffee culture is there as well. Um, the other thing I... I think we share, at least I felt that in the meetings with the staff and the players, share a, a genuine, true passion to create a legacy that is bigger than ourselves, to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves and leave the game better than, than it was when we started. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 2021 brings exciting new horizons for women's football and a fresh start for the Matildas with Tony Gustafsson taking the reins. Tony, when the Matildas were looking for a new head coach, the players indicated that a good cultural fit was very important to them. How do you feel you'll fit into the culture? Well, I hope I do. <laughs> um, and I, I, again, like I said, when I, when I saw the team play and when I've seen the team play, there's something that really resonates with me. Uh, as a person, I, you know, one word that comes up to me is intensity. You know, when, when the Matildas play, there's always intensity on both sides of the ball. And when you see me in the technical area during a game, I think you're going to see some intensity too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that passion we, we definitely share. Uh, I've been told that I think the, the 
coffee culture. There's a culture in Sweden called fika. You <laughs> take coffee with a colleague and, and you talk over a, a, a fika. And I think that coffee culture is there as well. Um, the other thing I, I think we share, at least I felt that in the meetings with the staff and the players, share a, a genuine, true passion to create a legacy that is bigger than ourselves to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves and leave the game better than, than it was when we started. And, and I think maybe we share that from a culture perspective and, and, and I, then whether I am a good fit for the group or not, will the future will tell, but so far, I know it, it, it's called, I think you say that in English as well. The first period is called the honeymoon period you know, <laughs> and, and, and everything is, is I, I hope I'm saying the right things here now because my swing English can sometimes uh, be challenging, but uh, I, I obviously everything is going to be positive now. Then down the road, we know from experience, there are going to be some some hiccups and some some stuff to, to deal with. But I, I hope I'm a good fit. Well, your Swinglish is definitely better than my Swedish. You mentioned that we'll see some passion in the technical area. What we won't see anymore is your trademark long hair. What happened? <laughs> so, so someone <laughs> said to me when I cut my hair, have you got rid of the, the crisis of the 40s? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We, we call it midlife crisis. <laughs> okay, that's the, the see my swinglish again. So I, I guess it was time to to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, uh, Tony. What are you most looking forward to about this role? There's so many things I'm looking forward to, for, but first and foremost, what pops up in my head is to meet all the people. Mm. You know, I, I am, I, I, you know, first and foremost, I, I, I am passionate about people, you know, and second, I'm passionate about the game, especially the green field of chess, meaning the, the tactics out there. Um, so I, I guess right now what I'm looking forward to is, is meeting all the people in person and, and be a part of, of this amazing journey. And I'm not just talking about players and staff here. I'm talking about the football Australia landscape and, and everyone included, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about education. I'm passionate about going to game. And what I think I need to do, to be honest, is I think I need to filter my passion a little bit and not running on every ball. It's like a, a game, you know, you have all the players <laughs> running on all, all the balls. You need to, to stick in your corner and respect your role. And I, I guess for me, it's now two parallel processes. One is the short-term laser focus on preparing the team for the Olympics. And then it's the more long-term work where I, I'm going to be involved in developing the game and the coaches and, and looking for the World Cup and, and the kind of the legacy process. And sometimes I, I think I'm going to find myself not having enough hours in the day and I need to prioritize those hours to the right things at the right time. So what do you do to relax away from the game? If you're at work, you're riding every ball and sending your blood pressure sky high. How do you chill out? Um, in different ways. First and foremost, family. Uh, mm. So the, the, the two Fs for me is football and family. Uh, that's number one. Um, secondly, I, I uh, uh, love the nature. So I um, love that, you know, for example, going out to the archipelago uh, on the water, uh, mm. the nature gives me so much energy and I live pretty close by. Uh, um, so taking a walk there as well to to let mother earth uh, help me check back that that gives me a lot of energy um and then if i want to relax at home i'm watching football <laughs> but i then try to watch football that is not my own team then just to get entertained in, in the uh, in the game so to speak and who's your team when you're a supporter you know what and this is this is people think i lie when i say this but i've never been really big from a young age to to really be big on one team because i had such a huge interest for the game early on already as a youngster so i watched a lot of games 
and I, I obviously follows my dad's teams and all these things played for different teams myself and then watch different leagues so what I did is kind of I maybe was really interested in a coach and then followed that coach where the teams he was to watch him train those those teams read a lot of books so, so I've been I've been a a supporter of the game is what I would say, you know, a big supporter of the game, but not really a supporter of one specific team. Uh, but of course, I'm, I'm the biggest supporter of the Matildas now. <laughs> of course. Tony, one last question for you. Apart from the actual coaching and the work you'll do with the players, there's something infinitely special about coaching a national side at their home World Cup. Can you sum up what that means? I mean, I am as excited as everyone else. And I honestly think that maybe potentially we need to, to put a little bit of a break on ourselves to, to, you know, it's one of those, you know, when you warm up for a game and you're peaking 30 minutes before the game starts and then halfway into the game, you're, you're fatigued because you're, you're so excited about it. And right now I'm, I'm so super pumped and excited about being able to be a part of the World Cup on home soil. And I can just picture, you know, when I saw those pictures on the Oprah house, you know, I, I just gave me these pictures in the back of my head, like what it's going to be about and what it's going to be like. And for me to be a part of that, wow, wow. Wow, indeed. Tony, we can't wait to meet you. We're looking forward to seeing where you take the Matildas and hopefully we'll be able to welcome you to these shores soon. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you for chatting and allowing us to get to know you a little better. Stay safe and all the best for what lies ahead in your role with the Matildas. Thank you so much.